you think back on things that have been said to you over the course of your life, you'll find an interesting exercise why certain things lingered with you. Maybe it's having a coach three inches from your face holding your face mask saying, Young blood, what are you doing? Which I think is his way of saying, you're really great. I like what you're up to. Or having a counselor say, Eric, when did you kill your heart? What are you supposed to say to that? October 1976, killed it. Dead. But also gotten words just like these. My wife this week texted me and said, I loved, all caps, loved, your response this week. That's the essay that I write occasionally. Well, that stuck with me. Hey, my wife likes me and something I did? That's fantastic. Or Henry Henniger, who stood up here and It's been such an integral part of the foundation and the sustenance of this church, who when I candidated here as a 27-year-old, 28-year-old man, 27, I guess, when I was candidating, and I was sharing with him my colossal sense of there not being any way that I could actually pastor a church, and him saying to me, no, you need to be here, you've got things to say. There is, as you've felt in your life and as the scriptures corroborate over and over again, a kind of medicinal value to our words. They can be poisonous, of course, like medicine to which you are allergic, but they can also be resuscitating. They can stabilize you. They can make you move more freely and easily in the world. They can give you vigor. They can give you courage. They can be sweet and savory, and that is what we're going to talk about today because we are in the middle of a series called Life Together, which is loosely based off of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a 20th century German pastor, and he wrote a book called Life Together about Christian fellowship, and it's incredibly astute, and it talks about being a one-anothering community that has been formed not by its good looks, not by its cleverness, not by its common commitments to loud, angry doctrines, but because it has commonly been acted upon by Jesus in its great need corporately for mercy. And in this series, we've talked about the unification that Jesus has prayed for and is working towards, and prayer as a part of our community arsenal of tools that help us be who Jesus intends for us to be. And today we're going to talk about something else that should be in our toolbox, a very valuable, enriching tool called our words. The first thing I'll say, the first point that I'll make is this. When you are speaking, if you listen to what Grace just read in the Proverbs and in the Apostle Paul's words in Ephesians, when you are speaking, you must think about them. When you are speaking, you must think about them. 
Now, this runs clean counter to about everything you've ever been taught about speech, perhaps. If you're a creative person, if you're an artistic person, if you're a well-socially-connected person on the interwebs, you know good and well that speech is not for the benefit of others. Speech is about imposing yourself on the world, isn't it? It's about expressing yourself. Young artists, this is why all, all writing from young people is awful. Sorry. Because people, when they're young, they think that artisticness is about self-expression, merely. They don't realize it's about, it's about capturing reality in some way, telling the truth as you see it. It's way different than self-expression. But we walk around thinking, what I need to do is let the world know how I feel about it. And we, we would get in arguments when we have interactions with our friends or our parents or our spouses. So often, we're, we're merely waiting our turn to speak, to say what feels good to us to say without regard for what and how it bears on others. But you see, Jesus, as we looked at a couple of weeks ago, has this aspiration for this community that he has brought together. And the aspiration is that we would be a theater. That we'd be, you don't go to the theater very often, do you? So we're a movie, you see. Okay, you're on YouTube. Somebody took it on a, you know, on a little phone. You're a YouTube little short, mini. And, but we're the place where people are supposed to get a glimpse of an alternate society. A kind of way of being that they long for deep inside, but they don't ever see it that much. And that one of the things that this community should be characterized by is a kind of speech that thinks about others when we're speaking. That's the corollary of loving one another as Jesus has loved us, is thinking about them. Listen to the Apostle Paul. Let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Do you hear him piling up regard for the person to whom you're speaking when you're using these things called words? Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Because he knows what the Proverbs say, that there is a kind of speech Pleasant words, Solomon calls it, are gracious words that actually promote instruction. They actually are construction words that that build people up. They're fortification words. They're not like white bread words that just look like they got food. They're arugula words that taste much better. Kale words that are somehow have the taste obscured, but, but bring <laughs> nutrient-dense vigor into lives. A wise man's heart guides his mouth, his lips promote instruction. Pleasant words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul, healing to the bones. See, we're the community that has healing words to offer, sweet words to offer, words sweeter than Guthrie's sweet tea. And Mount Vernon's amaretto pie. Words that can be savory, that can be useful, that can, that can help stabilize us in a wobbly place. 
Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is useful for others, that it may benefit those who listen according to their needs. The other day, Ander and Kathy were going into Fairyland Elementary. And as we are wont to do as a family, we were, we were beating the buzzer, getting in there right before the bell. And as they were walking in, I love this. Ander looks at Kathy. They've beat the bell, but they know the time is short. And he says, Mom, we're running a little late. We're not going to be able to hug it out this morning. <laughs> that is awesome. We're not going to be able to hug it out. Well, see, that's what he's speaking. He's talking about the reality. We're, we're, we don't have time for this. But he's thinking of his mom who wants to hug it out. He knows that. He's, he's, he's taking her into account. And he's giving speech. To help ease the pain of not being able to hug it out because we're too late. See, this is the kind of thing that we are to do, is to be a kind of people who have the well-being of others in mind. Who are thinking about, how can I offer words of flourishing to them? And of course, to be able to do that, one of the things you have to realize is that you are not an exceptional case on the planet. Which is hard to realize. Because you're somebody... If I know you, and some of you I do and some of you I don't, but this is a rhetorical thing here. If I know you, you're the kind of person who wishes that someone would say, wow, that was, those words you said last week were really fantastic. I love the way you parent your little girl. What you said about your wife last week was so helpful to me. It made me want to love my wife better. Oh my goodness, the way you, the work you did on that report for us, the value it was for our company was exceptional. Woo! You're somebody that wishes somebody would say things like that to you. You're somebody that when you do something good and no one notices it, you feel like, ah, and you start to wonder, does everybody hate me? Why is my, do I have any value on there? But you know the problem is, You think you're the only one who thinks like that. But let me introduce you to someone who's sitting in front of you and behind you and to your left and to your right. They're the same as you. There isn't anybody in this room who isn't thirsty from time to time for pleasant words, sweet as honeycomb, for words that would heal bones, that would promote instruction, that would be beneficial to their needs, that would be tailored for their lives. Even Delcy needs good words, right? <laughs> yeah, see, see, it calmed her, see? You're doing great, Delcy. <laughs> we are people in a community of people. No matter how together you think the person around you is, no matter how wealthy they are, no matter how weird they seem to you, no matter how uptight they seem to you, whether they're heavily tattooed and pierced, or whether they got bifocals and Brooks Brothers, everybody in this room stands in need of mercy words, of gracious words, of tenderness towards them, of words that will help build them up and reassure them and show them who they are. Because nobody in here has a very adequate view of themselves. They don't see themselves in the right way. And we're mirrors of one another. We're the community that has been adored by God, commonly acted upon by God. As Martin Luther says, we are the infirmary for the sick and an end for the convalescing. We are a community that has been assembled, who is badly mangled, 
who has all kinds of God allergies, who don't see ourselves or others rightly. We're constantly thinking about how we can compete with other people, how we can establish ourselves and justify who we are. And God has said, no, 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 come in here. You mangly mess, come in here. Take a shower of my mercy and let all of that drip off you. Let all of that gunk come off of you. Everybody in this room, everybody that you meet is someone who is thirsty for a kind of warm, gracious deposit of words from you, from God, through you. When we speak, we must think about them and not merely ourselves. We have, as Aaron Tolson said a few weeks ago, we have been given a first aid kit. We walk around this infirmary of a community. This is what we're hoping will happen in the small groups when you meet. This is what we're hoping even happens when we take time in the service, when we share warmth with each other. We have a toolkit. We have a first aid kit to go around to the wounds and to the hurts of one another to offer medicinal words, to offer affection words, to offer reassuring words that say, I see you. I notice you. You matter, and you matter to God, and you've not been disqualified from his care. We've got to be people who think about them when we speak. And if we are thinking about them when we speak, then the next point is this. Whatever you do, there are certain things you must make sure not to say. If you're thinking about them when you speak, that means whatever you do, there are certain things you must make sure that you do not say. Bonhoeffer in his book says, or in his community called Fickenwald, this community of uh, seminarians, they were training for ministry. And he had a rule there that said to speak covertly about a brother is expressly forbidden. In other words... Don't say bad stuff about each other when they're not present. Don't talk about your brother when he's not here. Don't talk about your mama. Don't talk about your friend. When they're not in your presence, don't talk about them. Oh, come on. That's a little harsh, isn't it? He says, we're people who have to exercise the ministry of holding our tongue. And of course, to do that is only to realize how powerful words are. That they can be medicine. They can also be poison. So James, the brother of Jesus, who wrote in his little letter at the back of the New Testament, he says, if you think you're a religious person, but you don't control your tongue, which is a restless evil filled with poison, you don't control your tongue, your religion is worthless. You're fooling yourself. Your religion's like an iPhone 3S. It's not really good for you. A child can play games on it or something, but it's not a, it's not a religion that can get you through your life if you don't hold your tongue. He also says true religion is keeping yourself from being polluted and taking care of widows and orphans. See, true religion, when you get into contact with God, you know what you're going to want to do? You're going to want to look after, with word and deed, people who got nobody to look after them. You're going to want to come alongside people who are the most vulnerable, who are the most susceptible to harm, who got nothing. Your actions will display that, but your words will display that too. That's why controlling the tongue it's so very important. There's an acrostic that someone shared with me years ago, Marcus and Janet Holsey now. They were 
going through premarital counseling with me, as I've done through a lot of people here. Sometimes it works, not, sometimes not so much. Eh, just kidding. And I talk to them about arguing. I talk to them about talking, how to fight good, you know. And he shared with me this one time, this acrostic. You know what acrostic is, right? That's, it's a word and the letters stand for something. And he shared with me this acrostic that says wait. W-A-I-T. Wait. The acrostic stands for this. Why am I talking? <laughs> it's an acrostic that's meant to slow us down. It's like those roundabouts and traffic situations. Traffic engineers have figured out that these overtly and overly complicated little roundabouts when there's intersections. You know what I'm talking about? We go through one every morning in East Lake. These roundabouts where you don't ever know what you're supposed to do. Four things coming in and all kind of yield signs and who's going what. But you know what happens? People have less wrecks than when they're red lights and stuff because nobody knows what to do, so they slow down. <laughs> you're like, I don't, you, you, and so you're, you're going like four, negative three miles an hour and you're yielding to each other and you're being careful. And see, when you start to have in your mind, this is my aspiration, I'm going to use my words for the benefit of others, which means there are certain things I cannot say, which means when I find myself starting to talk, I'm going to say, why am I talking? Why am I talking? Am I talking for their good right now, or am I talking to impose myself on the world? Am I talking to make sure that they are punished for what they did to me, or am I talking to help them to get better? Am I talking to help them to learn how to love or learn how to see? Am I talking to encourage them, or am I talking to make sure they get put in their place? See, when you ask this question, why am I talking, it slows you down like the roundabout. You do less damage. You're more careful with your words, less careless. Kind of like God who doesn't speak useless words. He doesn't speak words that fall to the ground. All his words produce the effect he intends for them to have. And if we're going to image him, then we ought to have purposeful words, which means we ought to have words that we refuse to say. And some of you don't realize this dynamic that there are a great number of things that cross your mind that should never see the light of day. You think, if I don't say something about this, it's going to eat me alive. Guess what? It won't. It really won't. In fact, if you give voice to everything you feel and everything you think, that will eat you alive. It'll just keep reinforcing your gunkiness, which is a word. It'll keep reinforcing, keep practicing the presence of all the awfulness you feel, all the resentments. It'll help you keep re-feeling things that you don't want to feel. I'm not saying you shouldn't share. I'm not saying you shouldn't have moments of candor. But there are some of us who think that every negative thing we think we got to let somebody know about. That's why some of you just need to be alone sometime and throw your phone away so you got nobody to communicate with. You just have to sit there with all your stuff. Uh, you know, all your inner stuff, with nobody to tell it to, except God. You can tell him, that'll be okay. Whatever you do, you've got to make sure there's certain things that you don't say. Why am I talking, you have to ask yourself. Slow yourself down if you want to have words that are wise, that promote instruction, that are for the good of others, that are not poison, but medicine, that bring healing 
to the bones. I've been reading, or I had read, a story that Kathy got called Nanny Piggins. It's an important story based on mostly true things about a pig who was in a circus who was a flying pig who comes to be a nanny for a group of children who do not have a mother. I think, I think this happened in Australia or something a few years ago. <laughs> and Nanny Piggins is a, she's a bold pig, bright and fearless. But Mr. Green, who's the father of these children, is, uh, he's characterized as an oafish figure. He loves money. He does not love his children. He's a, an accountant of some sort. And it says this about him in the morning at breakfast time that he often made declarations. And the reason that he did this was so that he would not have to spend any time with the children. They're characterizing him as an awful fellow who doesn't want to be with his kids. And part of the way he shows his lack of care is he makes pronouncements. He just starts talking. That way he doesn't have to deal with anybody. He doesn't have to get infected by them. He doesn't have to be affected by them. He doesn't have to listen to them talk to each other. He doesn't have to take them into his heart. It's a children's story, I know, but bear with me here. That's why it's important to say, why am I talking? Am I letting the other people around me affect me? Am I taking them into heart so that I could speak medicinal words to them, or am I only speaking for my good? You start to look around your life and you realize anytime. You're tempted to, say, discount another. Somebody comes up to you, and they, they, they compliment somebody that's your secret rival, but you don't want to admit to that. Do you see how pretty she looked today? Oh, well. well and you, you, you insult her some way. You figure out some way to insult her. Do you see that new car you got? Man, he must be really doing Oh, well, he's actually got a trust fund. Uh, you have to let them have it. You've got to make sure you bring people down a notch. Why do you do that? Because you're trying to find a place to stand. You're thinking of everyone as your competition instead of all of us as people who stand in need of the mercy of God. So if you find yourself blaming or envying or leveling people, discounting the work and the good and the compliments of others, those are things you can stop doing. Say, I'm not going to do that. You find yourself defending yourself. Someone comes at you. I can't believe you said that. Well, what's your first thought? Yeah, well, you're dumb. Your mom dresses you funny, idiot. <laughs> or you want to hit them in the eye or else you want to crumble and run away and then write bad things about them on a Twitter feed. No! Why don't you just listen to them and say, maybe they got something to teach me here. Maybe, as Dallas Willard says, I have a defender and I'll have to let him do his job and defend me. My reputation and my honor depend on the, depend on the Lord, not on me. I don't have to defend myself. A lot of marriages would be instantaneously healed if you just stopped defending yourself all the time to each other. And that goes with children and your workplaces as well. Or what about this? Do you ever do what the counselors call triangulation? Which just means if you're really mad at Larry, and so you go to your good friend Joe, and you link up with Joe about your great displeasure about Larry. You got yourselves a little triangle of connection there where you're all aimed at Larry's awfulness. This is not helpful to Larry or to you or to Joe, if you know any of those guys. (laughs) 
if you're someone who's thinking about them when you speak, then you'll start to say, there's certain things that I cannot say. There's certain things I must not give voice to. I have to ask myself, why am I talking? And then you'll start to realize if you watch, why does the Bible always say, don't grumble? Don't do everything without grumbling and complaining. Because there are lots of things, Aaron Tolson said this too, that once you say them, you say them because you feel them, but once you say them, you feel them because you said them. This happens to me in the mornings when we're driving to school. And it perennially happens to me throughout the day when there are people who don't have the good sense to realize that they're slowing me up. Like, what on earth are you doing enjoying God's creation? Looking around, thinking it's so pretty. I got places to be, man. Why are you being so thoughtless and going the speed limit? Or in the mornings when the dude with the truck cutting service with his two big rickety trucks passes our driveway just as we're going out. And I go, no! It's going to take us 45 minutes to go one mile down our street now. And we live in the country. There's no traffic except for this guy that's blocking everything. And I realize as I'm driving how helpful it is to me if I go, ugh, ugh. And I start smashing things and complaining. What's wrong with this guy? Well, all it does is it just keeps reinfecting me with the same virus. You don't have to say it. That's why you got to practice getting control on your tongue, asking Jesus to help you control your tongue. There's so many things you don't have to say them. They're not helpful to you and they're not helpful to anyone. But there are certain things you got to make sure that you do say. When you think about speech in this community, you've got to think about them when you talk, which means there are certain things you must not ever say. There are other things you must always try to say. Garrison Keeler says, There are so many nice things said about people at their funerals that it makes me sad to realize that I'm going to miss mine by just a few days. <laughs> Wouldn't it be a shame... That you have all these people around you that love you, who might even think a good thing or two about you from time to time, and you're not going to hear it until you're dead, and when you can't hear it, don't wait. I promise you, you don't know anyone who couldn't stand to hear some affirmation, who couldn't stand to hear some attaboys, well done, girl, you go, girl, you know, whatever who couldn't stand to hear some kind of you recognizing the work of God in them, some kind of value-laden word that confers to them that they matter. But you know what? These are the hardest things to share sometimes. It takes courage. I don't know why it is, but it seems to me that there's all kinds of things. Think about this. Has anybody ever done any good turn to you? Or you noticed something about someone and you thought, man, I should probably write them a note. I should probably let them know how valuable that was. And then you just, you just never got around. It wasn't that big, big, big of a deal. Nothing's going to happen if you don't. They don't know. It's, it's something you had in the secrecy of your own heart anyway. Tell them. Let them know. From time to time, somebody will come up to me, and they'll say, like once a decade, somebody will say, Hey, I know you hate this. This is what they'll say. I know you hate this. But your, your sermon last week or what you wrote, it was so helpful to me. And you know what my first thought is inwardly? I'll, you know, I'm outwardly polite all the time except at home. 
I'll say, why on earth do you think I hate this? Is it because of the car I drive that you think I'm falsely humble? I don't hate it. I don't know any humans who hate to be complimented. Thank you, Hartley. Do you see how wise Hartley is? And he doesn't hate that. Everybody likes it. Now, doesn't everybody doesn't know how to handle it. Somebody might act like an idiot, like myself, when I get complimented. That doesn't mean I don't like it. Try it. Express your admiration. Express your kindness. Express things you notice going on well in people's lives. To bring healing to their bones. And if you're going to do this, you know, one of the things that happens is it starts to diminish you. Francis Schaeffer says, every time I notice good in another, it diminishes myself. Which is good. Anything you can do that gets you off of yourself, that gets you weaned off of thinking about you all the time, is good. Anything you notice out in the world, anything you notice about a person, train your eyes. You're looking all around you at the image of God. People that God thought were worth creating. They might not be like you want them to be. They might not believe the same way you want them to, but they're precious to God. All around you are people for whom Christ died. He thought, they're valuable enough to me that I'm going to spill my blood so that they can be mine. So they don't have to justify themselves so all their sins can be hurled into the depths of the sea so they can belong to me forever. Train your eyes to see people like that. Ask Jesus, help me to see people like you see them so that I can offer sweet as honeycomb words that heal bones and heal hearts and heal and soothe troubled minds. It takes great courage. It takes great vision. But whatever you do, there are certain things you've got to make sure you say them. There's a story that I close with about a woman named Mary Penn who came from a distinguished family, and her family wanted her to maintain the family status, but she didn't. She married Elton. Well, Elton, as her parents said, was trash. No good. And so with their secret marriage came the parents' disapproval, their implicit and explicit rejection. Mary and Elton moved to a community And in this community, these wonderful things are said about the women there. The women there, though some of them had no children of their own, they were mother to any who needed it. And Mary Penn, this young girl who was learning how to be a wife and learning how to live without the favor of her parents, it said this, they showed her a warmth which answered her parents' rejection. They showed her a warmth that answered her parents' rejection. We, as a community, have the resources. We call it good news. That God has given us warm words of welcome. That we anticipate being scrutinized at the end of our days and Him saying beyond belief, well done. I'm so glad you're here. And it won't be because we were so good, but because our Savior was. We have a Savior who says, come to me and I'll never drive you away. That you can't make me not love you. 
And we're the community that brings that reality to life with warm words, which answers the world's rejection. There's no one you meet that doesn't want to be accepted, that doesn't want to be welcomed in, that doesn't want to be at the center of the heart of things. And we're the community where God has said, you get to be in the middle of my heart. Those are his warm words. If you realize you failed in these ways, God says, take words with you and bring them back to God and say, I'm sorry, I've used my tongue for harm and not good. And that means there's stuff in me that's not so good. Will you do something with it? See, what a community that can get forgiven over and over again and can offer it over and over again. We are the community because the spirit of Jesus lives here. As we make it our intention, as we pray about it, as we think about it, as we determine to speak for their good and not our own, as we determine there are certain things we do not wish to say and others that we always will, we are the community that can give warm words that answers all the rejections that people ever have. Will you embody these words, these beneficial words, which are healing to the bones, which are medicine to the soul? I hope so.